Hello, and welcome to Design Is Everywhere, the new weekly podcast from Design Museum Everywhere. It's Thursday, June 18th, 2020. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano, founder and executive director, and I'm joined by your other host, our amazing vice president, Liz Pollack. Hi, Liz. Hi, everyone. School is mostly over for the summer around the country, but we're still thinking a lot about education as we and many others are planning for virtual camps and summer sessions. This week, we're talking about designing curriculum for K through 12 education, curriculum that's equitable, that works for kids of all backgrounds and learning styles. We have an amazing guest co-host joining us right from the Design Museum team. Diana Navarrete Rakakis is our Director of Learning and Interpretation. We'll chat with Diana about her work at the museum as well as curriculum design and equity. Then Diana, Liz, and I will interview Dr. Aaliyah Samuel. She's the Executive Vice President of Government Affairs and Partnerships at NWEA. We'll chat with Dr. Samuel about her work to bring equity to the K-12 education system and what it means during COVID-19 and in a time when we're seeing such an incredible public response to deadly police violence against Black people. Plus, as always, we'll have our weekly dose of good design. Before we dig into this important topic, Liz, what is happening at the Design Museum? Well, as usual, we have a lot going on. Last week, we had an awesome Design Museum Live virtual event with Steelcase senior researchers Patricia Wang and Lenka Chekova. They talked about how we can still innovate even as so many of us are working remotely. It was a really interesting and interactive session where Patricia shared five growing pains of global innovation and attendees brainstormed ways to solve them. Here's a clip. So you need trust, you need creative conflict, and now you need to... Um, try to balance balance multiple inputs and balance multiple regions potentially um, to create a consolidated solution of some sort right or resolution of some sort and one of the pieces one of the insights that we saw or one of the things that we recognized is that um, there's very challenging um, there's very challenging power dynamics and it's not necessarily intended our next Design Museum Live event is on June 26th. It's part of our sketch series. We'll have the amazing designer and sketcher, Michael DeTullo, showing us how to draw footwear. You can grab tickets on our website and keep in mind that we have free tickets for any students who want to attend. Yeah, I'm really excited for the event with Michael. And if you're a student, go to our website, go to the main navigation and click on For Students. Also, on the last episode, we mentioned we'd be posting some resources for you around anti-racism with real action steps that you can take to help the movement. That's now live on our website. Just visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on the latest. With that, let's move to this week's topic. Today, we're diving into the design of curriculum for students in grades K through 12. For one thing, you may not realize that there are educators really curriculum designers out there in the world thinking about and exploring how we can best teach our kids. You can even think of them as experienced designers, creating an experience for people to learn. So we'll explore this from multiple angles and we'll go a bit deeper and talk about the importance of equity in curriculum, both in terms of race, as well as taking into account the many ways different kids learn. This is an important topic because, well, what's more important than education? I can't think of anything. Uh, but also because of the current context with the pandemic changing where and how kids learn, you know, COVID-19 really forced parents to transform into teachers almost overnight. And let's not forget the growing protest movement against police brutality following the murders of Breonna Taylor, 
Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and so many other Black people in the United States. All of this impacts education because our children are existing and learning in this context. So to talk about education, curriculum design, and equity, I'm so pleased to bring Diana Navarrete Rakakis on the show. She is our Director of Learning and Interpretation at the Design Museum, where she develops, plans, and executes unique design education programs like our Neighborhood Design Project, our after-school program in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She also infuses education through thought leadership in our public programming and interfaces with our education think tank. Diana is passionate about creating accessible and interactive educational experiences for local audiences. She is dedicated to holding inclusive spaces that empower participants to more confidently navigate their worlds. Diana, welcome to the show. Hey. For our listeners who aren't aware of curriculum design, can you tell us about how you think about and approach that whole practice? Yeah, I, to be completely honest, didn't quite internalize and realize that creating curriculum is a form of design until honestly embarrassingly recently, where I <laughs> realized that like instructional design, big quotes, is an actual like design field that people go into and specialize in and call it design as opposed to just call it like quote unquote just calling it education. Um, so curriculum design, it's really about figuring out how you are going to best explain and help someone learn and understand, contextualize, and then remember for a very long time uh, a certain set of information. Mm -hmm. It seems like every teacher then is a curriculum designer at some level, right? Yes, absolutely. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of skill. Um, and the teachers out there who, like just big ups to the teachers out there who are taking changing standards and changing information and integrating it as best they can, um, often overnight it feels like, uh, especially now with COVID-19. Probably know the answer to this, but I'm gonna ask it anyway, but <laughs> would teachers benefit from some instruction around design thinking and experience design? Like, oh, yeah. as you kind of, traditionally think about design? I think so. And there have been, you know, plenty of organizations and, and people working to do that, not only to help um, just kind of frame the way that design can work in curriculums, but also to help empower teachers in making larger systemic changes within their spaces. Mm. I think that we often forget that teachers are not just like, yes, they're teaching facts, they're teaching things, curriculum to their students, but they're also holding and creating a community and they're community organizers and designers as much as oh, they yeah, are. Oh, yeah, it's a whole other curriculum level. Design. Yeah, like <laughs> teachers are amazing. <laughs> I think we need to like, get to that do. out front. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I've seen a lot of really wonderful organizations start working with teachers to help them kind of address issues in both their classroom, like how is it that everyone can feel like they're being a part of the classroom and that they have ownership over the space as both a student and a teacher, but even wider than that, like how do you work between classrooms? How do you work within a grade? How do you work within a school? How do you work within a district and create change that way? It's very natural to what teachers already do. Um, so they're just, I feel like teachers are truly natural designers. Just if you think about, as experienced designers often think about like the touch points, you know, between the experience in all its forms. And I'm just like, there's almost infinite touch points oh, yeah. for a teacher and a student. And I mean, teachers, do, I mean, they're, you know, there's a lot of training that goes into being a teacher and getting your credentials. Um, and on top of that, there's just so much learned experience uh, mm. in that. 
to me, teachers are kind of like the ultimate reiterators. Like they try something, it works. They have yeah. like evaluation and testing in all of its forms is part of that process. And they take that feedback and they take it into the next, le- the very next lesson they do. And then they take it even broader into the next year of the lessons that they're doing. You and Sabat Karim wrote a great post on our website with tips for parents who are teaching at home, right? So school is just about over, but I think that this is still on people's minds as we think about summer learning and even what will happen with the pandemic this fall. Can you share some of the ideas and the advice that you put out there for parents? So one of the things that was most important to me is to make it clear that expectations are not the same for parents in this space. It's very (laughs) difficult to suddenly become experts in these subjects and learn how to teach them to maybe multiple children in multiple grades at the same time. That's incredibly overwhelming. And I hope that people understand that it's a very difficult space. No one is, hopefully no one is expecting you to be perfect. Um, But that said, it's not That doesn't mean it's a free for all and everyone gets to kind of like forget about their child's development, Um, especially keeping in mind the fact that there are very many parents who cannot actually help their students learn this material. Either they're essential workers and they're out actually working all day. Or, for example, like my mom, my mom never graduated high school. There was no way she was going to help me in that stuff. Right. If we were in this however many years ago. So just keeping in mind that there's a lot going on. Students are unfortunately, I mean, the numbers are in, students are unfortunately going to be behind coming in the fall. And it's about what it is that we can do to kind of help everyone get back to the same level. What I'm seeing instead, which I think is in a really interesting way to approach, especially the summer and the summer months generally, you know, whenever students are in school, be it summer or any other kind of winter or fall vacation, is to have them learn by doing like real life projects and things Mm. (laughs) just you know like have them learn by doing like we learn by doing and that will really help a student kind of solidify some of these ideas that they are learning in school just in a different way that does not replace learning in direct you know conversations with teachers and all of that but it is a way to kind of help students learn how to learn things on their own love to zoom out and if we can pretend covid doesn't exist <laughs> what an amazing thing to all do. right <laughs> uh, if we can but really what i want to get to is sort of i know you do a lot of research on this and you're thinking about it a lot just kind of give our listeners the state of k-12 through education because i know again pushing covid aside there's a lot of challenges and opportunities sort of already happening yes So the state of K-12 education is unfortunately tied to where you live. So depending on where you live, what your district is, what your funding looks like, you are going to statistically have a very different conversation, a very different understanding of how K-12 works. I think, I know you said don't talk about COVID, but I think it's <laughs> okay. We, I mean, we've seen <laughs> it impossible. so clearly through COVID, right? Where some students totally. have access to computers and Wi-Fi and have access to teachers and, and counselors, you know, and specialty teachers like art and music and physical ed teachers. And they're all working together to create an experience for these students. And these parents are able to work from home and coach their students and get all of that. And that's just not the truth for a lot of students out there who the But beyond 
just the fact that they are already under-resourced areas where the funding isn't coming through. We're now seeing a huge uptick in layoffs in teachers as well. And the first teachers that are going to go and that we're seeing, I mean, I'm following particularly here in Massachusetts where I'm based, is we're seeing counselors go. We're seeing counselors go, we're seeing art teachers go, um, and we're seeing young teachers, like, you know, first three-year teachers go where they're not guaranteed a contract. Um, And that absolutely will change the kind of experience you have. There's the idea of these wraparound services, right? What are the things that are kind of wrapping around your, what you traditionally think of, like your history, math, science, teaching? Those are the things that really elevate a learning experience for a student. Um, I think a really clear example of that is like a student, it's been proven over and over again. And that's why we have so many of these like free reduced lunch and breakfast programs. A student cannot learn. It's like the very basics of humanity, right? Like they cannot learn (laughs) if they are hungry. And so to see what's happening kind of across the country is a lot of underfunding of these wraparound services that then lead to kind of poorer learning experiences and poorer learning situations for some of the you know most needing students for it. One other element that I've heard you talk about, like as you're developing educational programs at the museum, is different learning styles. And I think it would be really interesting to talk a little bit about those. And because I imagine when you or other teachers are designing curriculum, you're having to take all those different learning styles into account, even in the same lesson, maybe. If to me is that idea of these, what you were just talking about, these touch points, right? What You're not necessarily creating an entire lesson for each type of thinking. Like realistically, there is not a lot of time in a, a period for that kind of learning. Something that I've seen pop up a lot that I really enjoy is this Uh, kind of blended learning model, which is where you're actually, it sounds like a lot and it is, but what you're doing (laughs) is you're creating pockets of different types of learning happening at the same time. Uh, So you could, for example, split a class up into like three different groups, let's say. And your first group is traditional kind of what we think of as school learning, sitting in front of you, you're doing a direct instruction lesson where you're directly speaking to your students and going through some kind of information. While another group is working individually, they're reading something and maybe writing a reaction to what they've just read, right? And then your third group is doing a small group project together. They're like figuring out a puzzle or like figuring out some, a way to define something and they're doing it together, creating something together. Those things are all happening at the same time and it allows students to kind of tap into where they most kind of quickly grab onto the information. And it's a great way to keep, again, that classroom community alive. That sounds so cool and dynamic. I want to be there. I know. I love that. So, you know, all of this is related to equity. And we're going to talk more about equity in education with Dr. Samuel in a minute. But I'm hoping that you can help us set a baseline of knowledge. Um, And when we talk about equity, What do we mean generally, and what do we mean in the context of education? In short, uh, I think kind of one of the easiest ways to think about equity is making sure that each person has all of the resources that they need to perform at a certain level, right? So that might not look like equally distributing resources. That might mean that some people need more resources than others in order to actually accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And I think that's really important because what we're seeing mm-hmm. is um, a space where um, you know districts are being kind of asked to give out 
resources whole cloth or states and cities are doing the same. And it's not acknowledging the fact that people have different backgrounds, different circumstances, different lives, that they're going to need a different set of resources. So in terms mm -hmm. of education, some of the things that I've already mentioned, things like making sure that schools actually have counselors and nurses and librarians and art teachers, things that'll actually help create a well-rounded educational experience, as well as these wraparound services like early drop-offs for parents who work or late pickups for parents who work, right? These things that are helping these students have a place to be. After-school programs and out-of-school programs are now a really popular way to help. And some cities are actually, a lot of cities are funding these out-of-school programs as part of their wraparound services. Things like lunches for free, um, making sure that where the communities need these resources, they're actually getting them. That would be ideal equity. Well said. Yeah. Listeners, you can check out Deanna's work on a very neat program we've put out there called Design Together. It's a collection of design activities, resources, and challenges for students of all ages. And I'll put out there that you know, adults can do them too. Um, they're a lot of fun. Uh, we just put one up about uh, creating a floor plan, which is really fun. So to check that out, visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and you'll see a link right on the front page. All right, Deanna, please stay with us. We'd love to have you join our conversation with Dr. Aaliyah Samuel, the Executive Vice President of Government Affairs and Partnerships at NWEA. Design is Everywhere is brought to you by members like you. Every member receives Design Museum Magazine, our must-have quarterly print and digital publication about design impact. It's how we can bring the Design Museum directly to your door. You don't even have to leave the house. It'll come to you. Each issue contains stories from creative thought leaders on how they're using design to change the world. Yeah, some past stories include Turning the Inside Out, The Workplace Meets Mother Nature by Lee Stringer, and interviews with design leaders like Kat Holmes, Senior VP of Design and UX at Salesforce. Design Museum Magazine is design inspiration you can hold in your hands. Visit designmuseummagazine.org to subscribe today for just $3 per month. That's $3 per month? that we bring the world of design to your doorstep. Check it out at designmuseummagazine.org today. And we're back and we're joined by a very special guest. Dr. Aaliyah Samuel is the Executive Vice President of Government Affairs and Partnerships at NWEA, a research-based nonprofit that supports students and educators worldwide by creating assessment solutions that measure growth and proficiency and provide insights to help tailor instruction. Dr. Samuel is a lifelong educator who has put equity at the heart of her work, creating partnerships and influencing state policies grounded in data, research, and best practices. And very cool, in 2019, she was appointed as a fellow to the Center of the Developing Child at Harvard University. Dr. Samuel, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I wonder to start uh, right out of the gate, if you could share a bit about NWEA, your work there, and, and what does NWEA do? Sure. So um, as you mentioned, we are a um, research-based not-for-profit. We actually have a really large um, research arm. And we not only provide assessments here in the United States, but we also provide assessments internationally. We are in just over 9,300 school districts here in the U.S. and assess just under 12 million kids. 
um, primarily K, uh, K-12. Um, and we assess another half a million plus kids internationally, and we are in about 148 countries. We are very much a mission-based organization and an engine of educators. Uh, many of us have been former teachers, principals. We even have some superintendents who are working at NWA. And um, our mission is to uh, make sure that all kids learn. And um, our part in that is assessments. And we really fundamentally believe in the importance of assessments to drive instruction mm. and um, recognizing now in the era of COVID and, and um, as we talk about learning loss, that uh, sound data is going to be even more important as we go back to school, whether it's summer, late summer, early fall. NWA has really been um, on the map lately due to our COVID learning loss research that was published. It's been on CNN, NPR, MSNBC, you name it. We have also done a series of congressional briefings on the COVID learning loss study. We want to help policymakers um, think about strategies that they can support to be able to flatten the learning loss curve in education. I, I pride myself that I am an educator first. And so being able to bring that voice and those experiences to the policy table, um, to me is really what my calling is when I think about um, both policy and advocacy work. Yeah, and as you're talking about kind of assessment, it's just making me think back to Deanna talking about the curriculum design process and how it's like you try things and then you gotta know if that thing you tried was good, <laughs> right? Right, and that's where assessments and data, I imagine, come in. Yeah, well, and, and you know, to be more specific, I'll, I'll give you an example. Through our COVID learning loss research, um, based off of the projections, we can estimate that kids in the area of reading may retain about seventy percent of the content knowledge, and in the area of math kids are likely to have, lose 50% to potentially one full year's growth wow. of, of um, math. They're going to go back to school like blocks of Swiss cheese where <laughs> the, the, the outside is there, but there's going to be gaps in their knowledge. That's so interesting. I wonder those gaps that you're talking about, if those are related to learning style, like we were talking about earlier, or if those are related to... Um, just like the common things you do in the home or the things that are easier to teach at home versus things you need more of that like structured, like something a teacher would know how to do. Do you know about the cause of the gaps, I guess? Does that make sense? There's, I mean, there's decades of, of research on, on summer learning loss. And um, in reading, they, there tends to be slightly less loss because of just the language that's used day to day. And now with technology, you know, kids are still, whether they're going in apps or other things, if they're going on demand, there's a certain sense of reading and language that happens organically day to day. Whereas in math and even science, those concepts aren't taught day to day. You're not using that day to day. Like we don't use fraction conversions every right. day or long division every day. And so those types of skill and concepts are, are most likely to get lost. I will also say that all the while we can anticipate some pretty dramatic learning losses and there's certainly a broad equity gap 
this virtual environment will serve itself well for some groups of kids and we will see some children do better in a virtual environment because they're not being bullied at school. Yeah, I think something that I've been thinking a lot about is also the students who just for whatever reason aren't able to attend traditional school, students with like severe physical disabilities that make it difficult for them to get out of the home or people who have a very intense history of bullying and all of that and just how much this has kind of opened up for them as well. And it's just now they have their existing in a space where so many other students are, are kind of they're entering to be new here but these students are kind of used to that virtual world and there is a little bit of confidence that's being brought through that where they they're the ones who know how it works and it gives them a little bit of a leg up when they're talking to some of their neighborhood friends and that kind of thing well and i think if we can remove the the um rigid perspective of what education could be, hmm. we really could address some of the equity challenges that, that we know exist. I mean, I, I'll give you two examples. Um, as I thought about summer enrichment for my kids, we're not calling it summer school, but just summer enrichment. Um, I was able to select their teachers and I have a different teacher for each child. I absolutely wanted a teacher of color for my youngest son because he has not had a teacher of color, um, but I knew I needed a high energy teacher for my third grader. And so I was able to go through my Rolodex and one, my third graders summer enrichment teacher will be out of Arizona where I was oh, a principal. Wow. My youngest son's teacher for the summer will be in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I, it opens up as we talk about teacher diversity, it opens up the opportunities for kids to engage with different types of teachers. I also think about kids in rural communities. I did a lot of work with Governor Bullock out of Montana and you know, in, in states that have large pockets of rural communities, the access that kids can now have to different types of curriculum, to science, to math, to even museums that, that they were not able to get ordinarily. And so if we can dismantle our thinking and really start to look at the opportunities um, that this could provide us, um, we could have a very different education system um, for kids. I mean, continuing on that same line, I'm just wondering if, you know, with your expertise in both education and equity, and especially in this historically significant moment that we're in, can you share a bit more with our listeners just about the importance of equity in education? Kind of elaborate on that. Yeah, well, you know, I'll start with just the changing uh, demographics of our country. The reality of it is children of color are the majority in public schools. And so if we don't start creating um, education settings where kids can see um, a mirror or, or some type of reflection of themselves, we're going to lose another generation of kids. And that could be through the diversity of the teachers. It could be through the diversity of the curriculum. It could be through honoring the diversity of the school population. But the reality of it is the world is changing. And so we have to consider how to honor those differences um, and, and to really allow um, for those conversations to be highlighted. Um, I am also a, a big advocate for um, looking at teacher diversity and ensuring that teachers of color are represented. I myself did not have a teacher of color until I attended a historically black college um, 
in Alabama. And so throughout my entire education experience, I, I didn't have that mirror. And it wasn't um, in the curriculum, which is often um, um, created from a one-sided story or vision of, of history um, with the advances of technology and thinking about preparedness for the workplace if our kids aren't prepared for a global society they will be left behind so we're not going to only lose a, um, another generation as far as formal education but we need to start thinking about the implications to the workforce and the workforce for the future um, and yeah. so, those, you know, those are just some of the benefits that I think we need to keep in front of us. Absolutely. Yeah, you're making me, I was thinking about it as you were talking about the teachers you were able to choose for your kids. But there's been a, a tweet going around about, you know, when was, when did you have your first black teacher? And every time I see it, I think, well, it was when I was in grad, not till grad school. Mm -hmm. And it just always stops me in my tracks. Yeah. Um, well, and can I tell you, that was the hardest part of leaving my principalship. I mean, mm. I, it was um, a pain that was not, I can't describe it. And the reason why it was so painful to make that decision to leave was because I knew the likelihood that my students or students would have another principal of color that they could relate to. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And yeah. It's, it's really interesting to hear you say that it's something that I experienced when I uh, left my last position at a museum where it was predominantly Latin American students that were coming to this particular after school program that we had. And it's definitely a, a question you have to ask yourself as a, like an educator of color, like, is the next person who's going to take this job going to be able to speak to their parents and understand the intricacies of the fact that many of their parents are undocumented? And how do you help them get resources that they need? And that's part of what that work is like. And I would really mm -hmm. love to hear more about how you know, districts, the kind of system as a whole can support teachers of color and what that looks like practically. Yeah. So I'm going to start at the beginning and I think there has to be an acknowledgement of why we see fewer teachers of color in the field. Education is, is probably one of the few fields that kids get an upfront experience of what it, <laughs> of what it's like to be a Job teacher, shadowing. you know, it, from day one. And, um, you know, since schools have been desegregated, the experience for children of color has not necessarily been a great one. I mean, we're still seeing it now, harsher discipline rates, harsher suspension rates. Uh, we're seeing, you know, in some places, a 20 to 25% achievement gap. There's instructional bias. I mean, there's all these layers that children of color are, are exposed to year after year after year after year. So when we get to the point where it's time to pick a career, right. why would you want to go into a career where you didn't have right. a positive experience? Like you're not just going to willingly say, this is what I want to do. Um, the second thing is, I think we have to think about holistically some of the challenges it, it, in education from the salaries to, you know, to a degree, the loss of respect that the field has had over the years. I also want to emphasize that having teachers of color are good for all kids. It, it doesn't just benefit kids of color, it really benefits all kids. Um, 
And so, you know, as we talk about this equity and we've seen the explosion of race conversations and, and really across the world, but that have started here, the importance of having that that day to day exposure to people of color so that it does become the reality. You know, one thing I'm wondering is one of my best friends is a kindergarten teacher. And, you know, I think she feels like she doesn't know how to move things forward. She doesn't feel like it's within her power from a policy perspective or just administration perspective, right? Like she, it's kind of like, I can do what I can within my classroom, but even then I hit barriers. And I'm just wondering what advice you might give to teachers who want to support and participate in policy work, but they don't know how. I can say another, you know, for every negative of COVID, I think there's a positive. And the positive is with folks having to deal with their kids at home, there's a whole new (laughs) level of respect for educators that we're going to have when we come out of this. Like, I can't wait to send my kids back (laughs) to school. Give them all a raise. Um, Yes. And so now more than ever, it is an opportunity for teachers to rally themselves. And we started to see a movement probably about two or three years ago with the teacher strikes from West Virginia to Arizona for better pay. But this is the time to both at the local level, start thinking about those local elections and how teachers can rally together to um, really create that influence at the local level. But we're also getting ready to go into um, another election cycle. And so thinking about how they can join teacher advocacy groups, how they, I mean, and there's teacher advocacy groups both at this local level, but then also at the national level that they can rally behind. And also I will say there is not a governor out in the world that is not an education governor or a workforce governor. So get into those governor's offices, make your presence known. Switching back to, you know, something we were talking about earlier with Deanna around curriculum design, I'd love to have you just speak to um, how do teachers design equity into curriculum and what advice you'd have there? Yeah, so there is a real lack of diversity in curriculum. Like, let's just start with putting that out there. there from from the authors to the perspective and viewpoint to the images and illustrations there's just there is an overall lack of diversity and the reality of it is there's not going to be a dramatic shift in our curriculum right now like the major textbook companies aren't just going to toss out what they have but being intentional on what the supplemental materials are and could be there's a lot of diverse books that are coming out individual books that can be used to supplement conversations i also think that it's important from um, a a conversation perspective, are we using asset-based language or is it more of a a deficiency perspective? You know, for example, um, rather than asking kids, you know, well, what do you do for Christmas? Asking what are the holidays that are celebrated in your home? I also think it's important to reframe reframe individuals' backgrounds, particularly for those like the social studies teachers. I cannot tell you um, how exhausted I am as a parent of color when Black History Month comes around. My kids in third grade, my oldest is a third grade in the last three, four years, it's been the same people, same things that are talked about. And it's like, no, and, and my husband and I are very intentional, like, 
there's so many more people of color that you need to be aware of. It's a matter of bringing diverse perspectives to the table. Uh, I think the analogy that that's best used when we talk about curriculum, you know, it's just like that class picture. You take the class picture, you wait for weeks, and when you finally get it back, what's the first thing you do? You try to look for yourself. And that's what kids are doing. And, edu and educators, not through our own fault, maybe for some, but there is an omission mm -hmm. of helping kids be able to see themselves. And that is fundamentally a problem. Yeah. So I'm wondering how can parents, I guess, of all races, of all backgrounds, meet this moment and play a role in educating their children about diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism? I, um, I actually have taken this charge personally, but one of the things that I really realized is that and it was Facebook, being on Facebook, that it was my aha. People are really isolated and within their bubble. And um, the, the opportunities that we have would ordinarily have to engage and have conversation over happy hour and drinks right. or going hiking or at dinner time, we don't have anymore. And so I actually um, rallied together five moms who are all of different either races or backgrounds or have had different experiences to come together. And we did a community webinar called Parenting Through a Pandemic. Oh, and awesome. we talked about COVID and race. Um, and so we were able to have an hour long conversation and we had almost 60 women um, oh, from wow. across the U.S. who joined. And, and, and there were two things that were striking in that conversation. Um, one was the genuine need to have a space that was supportive and understanding. And those questions could be asked of, I don't know how to talk to my kids about race. Mm -hmm. And then we were able to share our own stories and struggles with that conversation, but then provide resources also that we had collected to share with families. And so that we can't make the assumption that people aren't talking about race because they don't want to. There, there certainly is a group that is. But for a vast majority, it's that they don't know how to. Right. And so as educators, as leaders, I think it's fundamentally our right, our, I mean, our job to stand up and create those spaces and lead through this opportunity to have those difficult conversations. Right. My, my suggestion is, as, you know, as an adult, is one to do as much research and reading yourself as you can. Talk to people, figure out what you do and don't know so that you can help start modeling that kind of behavior for your children and put mm -hmm. like white kids should have these books on race in front of them as well. Make sure that you're getting them right. a diverse set of main characters and the things that they're reading and the things that they're ingesting and through videos and audios like and music. Right. Expose them to cultures that are not the ones that you grew up with. One of the panelists said she said, you know, as parents, we teach, we decide on so many levels what we want to teach them versus what we want the world to teach them. Mm. Don't let race be something that they're taught by the world. Um, so last questions. This one's for both of you. If we can rise to these challenges and design a better way, what would a fully equitable K through 12 education system look like? Oh, I have so many. Like one thing I, you know, start starting with thinking about, and hear me out first, 
reducing the number of brick and mortar structures that we have of schools because those buildings can cost 25, 40 million, 50 million for a building that is used essentially 184 days out of a year. And if we reduce the number of physical school buildings, how we could then funnel that 40, 50 million dollars a year plus the facilities maintenance plus 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 and funnel it in to those blended learning opportunities for kids where we could even think about having a more robust community supports so that to your point if kids need um, early child care and drop off or afternoon drop off or what if some kids choose to be virtual and rather than the school bus coming and picking them up and taking them to the school building the school bus makes its community rounds and takes them to a museum takes them to a church takes them to a park and we think about the fundamental structure differently i feel like part of the the greatest disservice that we've done to students is to tell them that their lives as students start and end when they walk in and walk out of that school mm. Right. It's so much larger than that. That's actually what's happening to kids right now. So they are learning right. in ways that we could not have imagined. Yes, there's some challenges on the instructional side, but there are also some benefits and, and some independent skills that kids are having to learn. And so, I, you know, so that's one piece. And that's also what I would encourage parents to do, like, don't think that because you're not doing long division or fraction conversions, you're failing your kids. Teach them independence, teach them lifelong skills, teach them the importance of routines. Like there's so many other ways we could facilitate learning and support that are outside of just academics. That is a great place to end. Thank you, Aaliyah, so much for being oh. here. We really enjoy this conversation. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Listeners, check out Dr. Samuels and her colleagues' work at NWEA. As I mentioned, they have an awesome blog. There's all kinds of amazing insights on education uh, for both educators and parents. Uh, some amazing information. So visit nwea.org. Now for our weekly dose of good design, where we share an example of good design that has impacted us or others in some meaningful way. This week, I will start things off. I was extremely impressed and really struck by uh, both the messaging, the designs, the movement around the Eight Can't Wait campaign. Uh, it's a project by Campaign Zero, which is an effort to end police violence in America. Eight Can't Wait is a list of eight policies that cities can adopt to reduce killings by police and really save lives. So it's things like banning chokeholds and strangleholds, requiring de-escalation, requiring that officers exhaust all alternatives before shooting, and requiring comprehensive reporting of incidents. Things that you would think <laughs> exist, uh, but don't. Uh, and I love this campaign for a lot of reasons. You know, it's research-backed, and you can really dig into um, how these eight policies, when taken together, uh, reduce police violence. Beyond the research-backed nature of it, the campaign is just very well-designed. It's very easy to understand. You know, there's simple graphics and ways to share the message. Uh, you can go on and see what 
how many of the eight your city has enacted. Overall, it's a great example of how good design can support activism, spur action. Uh, so check it out. Visit 8cantwait.org. Okay, Liz, you're up next. That's such a good one. Such a good example. Um, it's such an important one. Uh, so my weekly dose of design is coming from an experience I had this weekend where I put up a tent in my yard. I just want to preface this by saying that as a kid, my family and I went camping a lot. And my memories of camping and of erecting a tent consisted of sometimes hours of effort, inevitably getting something wrong, and always needing multiple people to make it happen. But fast forward to this weekend and putting together this brand new 10 by 10 tent by myself in less than two minutes and without requiring any instructions. And what really blows me away is not just how easy it was, but how dramatic of an improvement that was. And that even though I personally haven't been keeping up with the latest and greatest in tent design, <laughs> that there have been countless iterations and improvements that have been made in that time. Like, truly amazing. Um, and it also gives me hope, I have to put this out there, that maybe the next tent will also uh, pack up that quickly and maybe it will keep the bugs out a little bit better. I mean, I still think there's some uh, some improvements that could be made because yes. uh, those are as I remember. <laughs> that's amazing. That's a good one. <laughs> so that's mine. All right. Um, I think, I mean, I've been astonished by a lot of what's, going, what's been going on this past week and the past couple of months. And I think, honestly, Black Lives Matter as a moment of community design is phenomenal. The way that it is, I mean, honestly, international, the way that it's across so many states and all of the states within the nation, and just the way that folks are working together to create these systems of communication so that way information is being carried quickly and accurately across platforms so that way they're not being distorted by other platforms is amazing to me. Um, the way that they've worked together with external partners like the NAACP and many others that have the kind of financial and resource backing to help create, you know, help really get some results on the demands that are being made is amazing. Um, and for those of you who have not yet visited blacklivesmatter.com, please visit blacklivesmatter.com uh, and you'll see there like for great graphic design, great website design too. Uh, but just that the, the way that communities can really be used to create something amazing uh, has been a, a great dose of design for the week. Yeah, that's a great one. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you again to Diana Navarrete Rakakis and Dr. Aliyah Samuel for joining us this week. We covered a lot. And we'll be posting links to the stuff we talked about on our episode page so you can check everything out. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. Be sure to get your tickets for our next Design Museum live event with Michael DeTullo sketching footwear. It's going to be a lot of fun. Michael's a great presenter and that event is happening on June 26th. Can't wait. We can continue this conversation online. Like us, follow us. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. On Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, you can find us by searching Design Museum Everywhere. And as always, remember to subscribe to Design Is Everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and rate us. That would really help people find the new show. Yes, please. This episode was written by me, Sam Aquilano. We're produced by Ryan Flom. 
and edited by David Green, and we had some amazing research support from Diana Navarrete Rakakis. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For Liz Pollack and the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everyone.